0: I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Uncertain Podcast only has two episodes left in season three. We're wrapping up the season a little earlier this year because, as you may know, Tears of Eden has been slowly building an online community for survivors of spiritual abuse. During fall 2022, we're going to be taking some time to focus on that. You can learn more information about those groups by choosing the link in the show notes. We will be back with season four in January 2023. We will launch in January with Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month, and we hope you'll join us in raising awareness about spiritual abuse and continuing to interact with us on the website, on Facebook, and on Instagram. In the meantime, please feel free to offer your ideas of podcast topics or guests by using the podcast collaboration link in the show notes. Hey, everybody. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Nikki G, and we recorded this episode with Bob and Polly Hamp. And we had a really great time discussing abuse dynamics. Nikki, what did you think of this episode?
1: I really like the work that they're doing and specifically highlighting abuse and what abuse looks like, not just in the church arena, but just, you know, in different forms of society. A lot of people hear about trauma and are trauma-informed, but I like how Bob talked about what it looks like to be Mm abuse-informed, so to speak. I think that's very, very key, especially with everything that's going on on the planet right now. So this was a a good episode.
0: And in the episode, we talk a bit about trauma-informed being kind of a buzzword in the mental health world, and that, that's one thing, but then there's something completely different, which is being abuse informed. And so many people are not abuse informed. So that's what this episode is going to be about. I'm mm-hmm. really excited to share this with you guys. Thanks, Nikki, for doing this interview with me. Let's get started. Yes.
2: <laughs> how are you guys?
1: Good. How
0: are you? There we yeah. are. Hello. Good to see you. Thanks for doing this kind of last minute.
3: Absolutely. Sorry, it took so long to get us scheduled. We, uh, we got an answer. We got an answer.
0: (laughs) This is Nikki. Hi, Nikki. Hello. Hello. Hi. On the board of Tears of Eden, and we've been doing a couple, a few episodes together. So she specializes in narc abuse, not actually being.
3: Careful yeah. how you say that, right? <laughs> I'm a professional narcissist. <laughs>
2: it's like I tell people I've been in counseling for 30 years. It's it's finally starting to help me. You
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> Got it under control. Got it under control, and that's actually something we want to we want to talk about on this episode. The episode on Thrive that we listened to was just amazing on abuse dynamics. I shared it with a bunch of people. I shared it on our our email list and i was kind of looking at this episode as kind of a 2.0 of that okay and one of the things that i want to get into is just what what will happen if abusers start realizing that we're getting wise and we're understanding some of their tactics and so that's something we want to get into here but before we do that we'd love to just hear both of you intro yourselves what do you want people to know about you
2: Okay. So we together own Think Differently Counseling, which is what you see we're sitting in my office right now. Think Differently Counseling is a group of counselors in Grapevine, Texas, where we we own the practice and then we lease space to other counselors who are like minded and trained by our, in in our model, we also together own and curate.
3: <laughs> wow, fancy! <laughs> Think differently
2: Academy, which is kind of our attempt to reach outside of Grapevine, Texas, and make available to anybody who who's looking. Our our message, interestingly, is primarily freedom mm-hmm. and the restoration of the soul. But both of us have enough abuse in our background and experience, and and by that we do mean having been abused. Mm-hmm. That we we found ourselves in a world full of advocates and and people who are either trying to get out or have gotten out of the abuse world, and so as a result, we've kind of like almost developed a secondary niche that tried to become primary, if, if we could say it that way.
1: Right.
2: So that's that's the us part of it. You want to tell them you, and then I'll tell sure. Them
3: so um, I'm Polly, and let's see here. I'm a trauma recovery coach, and so I specialize in help. Uh, men and women heal from trauma, anxiety, all of the expressions from either CPTSD or PTSD, and just help them navigate and live free and very much tied in with all the freedom model. It's just a big kind of circular thing of all the parts. And yeah, that's what I get to do. Oh, and I'm an author and a teacher on our academy. Yeah. Yeah. So, awesome.
2: Thanks. We actually teach and train our own cert- certificate, yeah. and we have a model that's an integration of three different models, mm-hmm. and, and so, it, so it's hard to go get a certificate elsewhere when we are very specific to what we what we believe yeah. in, and train others in. Right. So, real quick, I'm I'm Bob, and I'm a, a licensed marriage and family therapist and have been for 30 years, most of that private practice with a little nine year diversion working at a mega church and helping them develop, helping them implement what I had spent the nineties developing, which is part of our model. And so my training formally is I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist with a master's in marriage and family therapy. So my graduate work was formally marriage and family and then informally I did a lot of work with NLP. When I left that and started into private practice, I started trying to figure out what that had to do with my my thought process around being a believer in Jesus and how that would how that would play itself out sitting in front of people with real life issues and not just, you know, religious religiously searching. And so in the process, then during the nineties, I spent the nineties integrating what I believed as a, you know, at that point, a 15 year believer with what I was beginning to practice as a brand new clinical therapist and, and in integrating those, I developed over those years, over the decade of the nineties, what I call the freedom model. And the freedom model is it's an encounter with God that takes into account the idea that freedom is not about, here's kind of one of our taglines freedom's not the absence of something, but the presence of someone. Mm -hmm. So rather than try to get bad things out of our life, we try to get Jesus into our life, trusting that when we make a genuine connection to him and allow him into the deep places of our heart, he's the one who will take care of the wounds and the pain and the entanglements of our soul. And so obviously kind of wired into that, a lot of my already existing beliefs about marriage and family and nlp but also trying to integrate the new testament into the death the death and the resurrection of jesus and the advent of the holy spirit into how do we then bring the restoration of the soul using our clinical skills and our spiritual beliefs and so the freedom model evolved out of that Um, obviously to say it's an encounter is a significant oversimplification (laughs) but that's that gives you kind of three parts of the model
0: all right. Thank you. Thank you for for explaining. So as a sort of recap of the episode that you did with Thrive, I would love to hear your how you would describe trauma and how you des- would describe abuse and the difference between the two.
2: I've actually taught this a couple different places and I'll talk about it about abuse, mm-hmm. then tag you for the trauma piece. Yeah. But I don't remember if I said this on the thrive episode, because I, I try to say this most places, but sometimes I forget my understanding of abuse at this point is very different than it was my first 15 years as counselor, because I experienced my own abuse towards the end of, I, I came to know that I was experiencing abuse towards the end of my first marriage. And I had six different counselors tell me that I was being abused. And for uh, about a year, I didn't believe them. And when I finally began to believe and got out of that situation, I looked back at it and asked myself, how could I not know? Like, trained professional, wise person, discernment of the Holy Spirit, how could I not know that I was being abused and stand in the face of all that and still be in denial about it? And I began to kind of look at it through the lens of how I think, which is systems and communication, all that kind of stuff. And what I realized is that at the root of all abuse is this misassignment of responsibility where the abuser asks the victim. And I say, ask very loosely, but asks the victim to carry the weight of responsibility for the abuser. You're responsible for my emotions. You're responsible for my drives. You're responsible for my choices. You're responsible to protect me. And by the way, you're responsible for everything I'm doing to you. And you're responsible for, you know, making me okay. So all abuse, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional, psychological, spiritual, all abuse has at the foundation of it, that misassignment of responsibility, where the abuser asks the victim or victims to carry responsibility for the abusers, everything that translates into multiple sets of behaviors. And one of the reasons it's important, I think, to define it that way is because when you define it only as behavior, then the helpers look at it and go, well, they've stopped. And when they think that the person has stopped, everybody looks at the victim and says, now now it's your turn. Now it's your move. Shouldn't you just forgive? And of course, once again, that's still putting responsibility on the victim. And so what we see then is that helpers who don't know better end up replicating the abuse, sometimes right there in the presence of the abuser. So one of the reasons I think it's so important to define it as the misassignment of responsibilities because that also affects treatment and it also affects recovery. So one of the ways I've described that is so for change to happen, the abuser must first and foremost take responsibility from that point on and forevermore afterwards, but also for change to happen, the victim must stop taking responsibility. And so many prescriptions, both from a secular and a faith model, (laughs) still put the weight on the victim now that he or she has stopped. Shouldn't you forgive? You know, aren't aren't you partially responsible for what happened now? It's your move when in reality, in the same way that the abuser should stop abusing from that point on forever and ever. Amen. So also should the victim stop taking responsibility for the abuser forever and ever. Amen. Obviously they should take responsibility for themselves, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but never should they take responsibility for the abuser's reactions, actions, emotional state, their drives, any of those kind of things, because that's simply functionally unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll say this as a tag, as a tag to hand <laughs> the trauma piece to you.
0: How does this result in trauma? And what does that
3: look like? <laughs>
2: oh, well, you said it for me. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So the, obviously the outcome of that, and of course you guys have heard this before, but the, the kind of the common belief that, oh, it's only verbal abuse or it's only psychological abuse is actually contrary to the research that says in many cases, psychological abuse does more harm than physical abuse. Mm-hmm. So I'll hand this to trauma then is, is always the result of abuse, Mm -hmm. which,
3: which here we go. Yeah. Tag. I you know, so just kind of a, a, an oversimplification, but a really helpful definition. And I'm sure you guys talk about this is that trauma is an injury to the nervous system. And so trauma is, is I, I think of it as an action word. It's something that has happened to you and you know be it a car accident be it a fight you had or you know you get hit in the head with a um, soccer ball at a game you know that creates trauma so you think about a bruise that happens and it's tender and it's painful and bruises though heal however when you have a lifetime of bruises it begins to break down all of the muscles everything so when you think about trauma psychological uh, spiritual you know you've got the long-term trauma that happens pre-verbal like when you're before you're born or when i say before you're born then into birth where you're pre-verbal and then you know the complex traumas that last you know for a really long time and then the extended version of that is in how do you repeat your family of origin and continue the trauma is saying, I'm not going to be that, but I'm going to be this, or I'm never going to do that. I'm never, I'm always going to do this. Usually you end up in the very same, if not the same circumstances, when that mirrors itself to continual trauma again. So um because really you
0: haven't healed the trauma within that's still correct. present.
3: Correct. Yes. If you haven't healed it, and so, and, you know, some people get into a codependent relationship where they're taking on the responsibility of somebody who does not take on the responsibility, say an addict or narcissist, serial adulterer. And, it's kind of a
2: mantra. Yeah. Addict, abuser, serial adulterer. Addict, abuser, serial adulterer.
3: And, it. and you, um, it's a horrible mantra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not much for the that the big, yeah, the big three. <laughs> and And so then, you know, in the cycle of abuse, you take on these codependent responsibilities, all that kind of stuff, and recreate trauma. So I'm sure you know you ladies being you know certified in what y'all are working through and all that kind of stuff, talk a lot about you know, trauma and the expressions of it, the the pain of it because of the abuse. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important. We we have this discussion on a certain podcasts and on our Instagram, but I think it's important to to continually describe the difference between abuse and between trauma, because like you were saying, Bob, the impact of the abuse doesn't end when the abuse ends, and that's yeah. important for folks to recognize on their healing journey. So I appreciate that description building on that in the episode that you did with Thrive you said something that was super profound trauma-informed being trauma-informed is a buzzword (laughs) we all hear that and it's like are you trauma-informed are you trauma-informed and Bob you had said in that episode that there's a difference between being trauma-informed and abuse-informed and I would love to hear you both talk about the difference between being trauma-informed and being abuse-informed and why that is important, especially when you're seeking out a therapist.
2: Yeah, super important. And yes. so the, the trauma informed, like you just said, it's a buzzword. And the problem with buzzwords, is, it's, you know, religion is everywhere. And what I mean by religion is words that don't necessarily mean everything that they should mean. You know, we, we come to repeat words, and the, the meaning of the words, the, the words and the meaning of the words gets divorced. And yet we keep repeating the words. And so that happens in all walks of life. And so when we say trauma informed, and it becomes a buzzword. Suddenly, there's all kinds of programs and certifications and ways that we can you know, read this book and fill out this quiz. And, and next thing you know, we're all trauma informed, even when we're not. Mm-hmm. But the distinction that you're after is, is, I want to make sure to hit that trauma informed is, is I think there are a couple of things that are pertinent in that and one of them is understanding the nature of trauma understanding what trauma requires in terms of the healing process. But I think it's also important to learn to recognize trauma when someone doesn't present with it, you know, because most people don't walk into the counseling office and go, hi, I'm here because of trauma. They come in and say, I'm trying to be a better wife, or they come in and say, I I keep having anxiety attacks, or trying to quit drinking, Mm -hmm. or they come in with a symptom and A lot of times I think one of the most important aspects of being trauma informed is the art piece. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is in counseling, I think there's a science and an art and and part of the art is kind of the intuitive capacity to read what's going on and and apply what you've been trained in the science to the reality that presents in front of you. Mm -hmm. So part of being trauma informed is the ability to, when someone presents with a symptom that they don't call trauma, to be able to go, okay, this, I see that this is what you're struggling with, but I see that it swims in a sea of trauma. Let's figure out how to make sure, you know, you're being cared for while caring for the, for the thing you need and not just the thing you ask for.
3: And I think it's really important as somebody going into counseling and looking for a counselor, you know, if it says on their bio trauma informed, it's, it's good to remember that your counselor or coach works for you and to ask your counselor or coach questions. And and sometimes when you've you've experienced abuse and you know you have trauma in your past, it can be scary to ask the questions of somebody that you think is a professional and that maybe I don't have value in asking those questions. And so you do, and it's incredibly important to ask specific questions. So when you say you're trauma-informed, what does that mean? you know, when, how do you navigate trauma? And if, if you're wanting to connect to a counselor or coach who has the same spiritual beliefs as you with that, you have asking those questions as well. How do you integrate navigating and healing from trauma and and coupling that with the Lord, if that is, you know, what you're looking for. So those are really important, you know, and if you are a helper, it's really important to make that incredibly clear for your clients as well.
2: So trauma informed and the distinction that you're chasing that, making a distinction between that and being abuse informed. I would say that I was a trauma informed counselor while still in the midst of my own abuse. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. That's really important.
2: Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, because I thought I was looking for one thing and I didn't understand what I should be looking for. And I would submit that the vast majority of counselors, licensed, trained, professional, seasoned counselors that I know still are not abuse informed in the way that I would want them to be. Now, I'm not trying to make myself the standard, but, I, but what I am saying is when, when we consider abuse by a behavioral definition, mm-hmm. which is, I think what most people do then people are looking for, has the action stopped? What action is happening? What, what behavior are we observing and trying to get to change? And, and they don't look for this issue of responsibility that I described earlier. And so uh, if we don't see it as a transfer or misassignment of responsibility, then we treat the wrong thing. So we can know everything we need to know about the nervous system. We can be EMDR trained. We can have all the latest research on trauma and not have the understanding of abuse as a misassignment of responsibility, or even learn to recognize it. I, I, you know, you guys probably also have heard the horror stories of the number of people. I've got a particular client right now that comes to mind. We're actually working on the trauma that she experienced at the hand of her therapists.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: All Which of them. So
0: tragic. So, oh, so, so tragic. So,
2: all all of whom, almost
0: more in tragic than clergy abuse, honestly, because your last stop of have help. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. All of whom at some point assumed that abuse was a behavior and dealt with her as the problem when she wouldn't open her heart to somebody who had changed behavior but had not yet taken responsibility. And so all the weight transfers to her, which is exactly what happens in the dynamic of abuse. And when the therapists transfer that weight of responsibility to the victim of abuse, a, that's a clear sign that they're not abuse informed B it's a secondary abuse. In some ways it's even worse, like you said, because mm-hmm. you go to the people you consider to be safe and you have an expectation that they're going to recognize what's going on. A number of people simply trust the therapist and assume that they're still the problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: The person I'm thinking of right now, she had at least enough discernment to recognize the therapists were wrong, but there were two counselors involved and both of them kept driving her to respond in a certain way, to make him. Okay. The thing is you can know everything you need to know about the nervous system and the restoration of the nervous system mm-hmm. and have an abuser sitting in front of you, abusing their partner and not recognize it when it's happening right in front of you. Because when a, when an abuser says to their partner, okay, well I've stopped, but you have to forgive me. That's, that's abuse. That's actually still the dynamic of abuse mm-hmm. right in front of the counselor. And the counselor may say, you know, he's right. Mm-hmm. Now they've joined forces against the victim. And you know, the victim already feels powerless enough. And the victim who doesn't know that they can stand up to a counselor, doesn't know they can fire a counselor, you know, will stay in that the same way they've stayed in the abusive relationship. Not only that, but now the abuser has another flying monkey who happens to have a degree and a license and therefore has all this validation in the professional world. So it's a it's a terrible thing to watch. Mm -hmm. But I, I think. Because I recognize how I was not abuse informed, I, I think I probably in my early days sent some people back into abuse because I didn't know what I was looking for. And I, you know, I look back at that and I go, you know, A, never again. B, I'm just devastated that I did that to anybody. And C, I know that people are still out there doing that today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that that phraseology of There's a difference between trauma-informed and abuse-informed. That was really enlightening for me because the church, abusive church that I worked for or the church that was chronically abusive, every church I worked for was abusive in some way, but the chronically abusive church, the people that did a lot of the damage for me were the therapists involved in this situation. And I think in a different situation, they were, they were very well-meaning people good people, but they did not understand the dynamics of abuse. They, weren't, they were not able to name that and they were not able to see that. And when I des- was describing what was happening to me, they handled it like conflict. This is just conflict. We have to resolve this like conflict.
2: Um, well, the, the other group that I've seen do this is people who are supposed experts in abuse like Child Protective Services mm-hmm. and counselors who work with Child Protective or those kind of agencies that are supposed experts in this dynamic, this thing called abuse. And yet so often they support the abuser and, and judges and, and the, yeah, judges, they support the abuser and turn on the victim. And, and that's frustratingly common.
3: Well, and then the victim, which not a, I'm quoting victim because I so don't like that word, but it's the best clearest terminology. Then when that person gets angry and frustrated, they then look like the bad guys. It's like, you know, it's like you amp and up. trauma it's, reacting. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. They're trauma reacting. It's like, what do you mean? That, you know, and all that. It's like, oh, see? Yeah, you're the problem. If you what just stop being one. so angry, you're the crazy one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You may already know this, but the uncertain podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show as we are this is my last question then i'm going to turn it over to nikki to ask more about specifically about narcissism and narcissistic abuse but as we're doing education and one of the things that we do at tears of eden is is giving people resources and 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 teaching this is what spiritual abuse is this is what it looks like and one of the the risks in educating people and giving people language to name things is that abusers are going to adapt and they're already doing it. Like We're already seeing it happen. We see abusers on Twitter and we know that they are abusers and abusing people and abusing their wives and and abuse people in church. And they are actively advocating for abuse victims on Twitter with 15,000 followers And they are abusers. And so they're like adapting to this culture of being trauma-informed. And and so I would love to hear from you both, what are some things that we can look for in abusers and that transferring responsibility is a really great example. What are some things that we can look for that abusers are not going to be able to change? And that, that if they're an abuser, we can always be looked for no matter how they're adapting their behavior. What are some things that can be signs for us that someone might not be safe?
2: Let me, let me approach it from a slightly different angle and then give the answers I think you're looking for. And and one of them is, and I'm I'm sure I've said this in the podcast you're referencing, but one of the things that we see is that abusers take advantage of the best qualities of their victims. Mm -hmm. And often because their victims are empaths and sensitive people and, you know, caring people, they're also intuitive people. And what happens when we recognize that our best qualities have been used against us, we begin to despise our best qualities. And probably the place this hurts us the most is we stop, we stop trusting our instincts. And so the reason I wanted to start answering your question there is to say, you know, before we even start listing characteristics and qualities to look for to identify abuse, don't forget that our instincts really are God given. If we have kind of a sense inside and can't put, concrete words to it trust it anyway especially if you're talking about hiring a counselor staying in a church some setting where you're not already married into it if you just don't feel right about it turn your back and walk just because your instincts and this is the mess this is the opposite of the message the abuser would give your instincts alone are enough
3: that's powerful
2: if you don't feel safe you're not
3: Mm Your nervous system is very aware of what's going on.
2: Yeah, I understand that the traumatized nervous system often doesn't feel safe in a lot of places that are safe, but if there's a person that you're dealing with and you just walk out of there going, something's not right, Mm -hmm. then don't go back.
3: And you retweets, you know, the hardest thing with social media is that like the words and the language, you can really judge them. Well, you know, fluff them up (laughs) and make them look really good before you hit, send and, and the person behind who sends the tweets, or if it's somebody else who actually tweets for them, you'll never know who they are. And so, you know, I think, go ahead. I'm trying to decide if I say this or not.
2: I also think this is super important. Empathy can be imitated. Mm -hmm. Responsibility cannot, Mm -hmm. right. Someone can learn the strategies and tools and techniques of empathy and not genuinely have it. Absolutely. But responsibility taking takes humility and to be able to say, I, yeah, that was me in this situation. I see my part of that and I own it and I can see how that, what I did affected you.
3: And not just in a tweet in front of people. And if it is a, a church leader, they do it in front of, a lot of people. And then those that step down and not try to keep being in the spotlight, but stepping down and then mending the destruction that they have created.
2: Which is all under the umbrella of taking responsibility, Mm -hmm. taking responsibility says I wounded people. I'm responsible to do what it takes to, to make them safe and to do my part of the healing process.
3: And I'm not going to move to another state and open up another church <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and keep doing what I'm doing and saying, sorry to my past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: I have a follow-up question. I want to unpack that a little bit more That the traumatized nervous system um, okay. is going to feel unsafe. And I think that that's one of the, one of the things that makes it difficult for us to trust our intuition when we are traumatized as, as we we're always Feeling unsafe everywhere we are. So maybe just briefly talk about that a little bit and what someone might do in that situation when that trauma is being used against them in an abuse situation. Yeah, it's your problem, you're traumatized.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna use a metaphor that I've been using lately that I think is helpful about the nervous system, and then we'll talk about what to do when it's so. For for kind of the layperson thinking about the nervous system, we sometimes don't understand the power of it and why it's such an important part of understanding trauma. And so I've recently been kind of toying with this metaphor that the human nervous system is like a self-driving car,
3: right?
2: So the Tesla, sorry, this is not product placement, not a free advertisement. <laughs> I just don't know you what know, you want to give us one, you
3: know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
2: we would drive Shut one up. around and talk about it. <clears throat> but, um, the Tesla, as I understand it has like hun- at least 120, cameras and sensors around the perimeter of the car that that does two things simultaneously it reads the environment and reacts simultaneously number one reads number two reacts simultaneously but the nervous system is exactly like that so what happens is the nervous system is both taking in the world around you but it's also telling you what to do so for instance if if someone throws a ball at you the act of catching a ball is an incredible act of science that the nervous system does without even like considering it 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 considers you know angle it considers speed it considers you know react reaction time how long it takes to get the hand to the place where the ball will hit at the exact same time and the nervous system does all that for someone who's caught balls before in their life unlike a 3 year old mm-hmm. you know your nervous system just takes over and reaches for the ball Just like a a self-driving car reads the environment and adjusts simultaneously to what it's reading in the environment trauma then is like a, a tesla driving through a swarm of locusts all the cameras all the sensors all of a sudden there's bug guts all over them and even though they're functioning exactly the way they're designed they're reading bug guts instead of lines on the road they're reading you know destroyed bodies of bugs and you know legs and arms and stuff. Sorry. That's okay. You know, but, <laughs> and, and so,
0: kill all the bugs, please. I'm, I'm right? with that so
2: the, <laughs> the system is functioning exactly the way it's designed, but it's reading inaccurately because it's been covered with something. So the nervous system has a perfect design, but when trauma comes in and makes an imprint on it or an injury, as we say, now it's it's still doing exactly what it's supposed to, but it's reading the environment wrongly. It's reading the environment through the film of the bruise as as Polly talked about It's reading the environment through the film of kind of the inflamed nerves that are, that are telling it nothing is safe. And so what happens is the spontaneous responses that come from a traumatized nervous system look like something's broken. It's not, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: it's functioning exactly the way it's designed. Mm but it's reading wrongly because of something that was done to it, not because something's wrong with it. And so part of your question, you know, you are talking about our comment that the nervous system is, is firing in a certain way because it's traumatized. So to read the environment, here's where, here's where learning to trust, which is of course difficult for traumatized people also, but learning to trust and letting other people help you start to clean the bug guts off. Finding other people that you trust to kind of, you know, if the if you clean the bug guts off and some of the sensors have been, you know, turned one way, you can trust some other people to help adjust it. I really think there's a certain point in the trauma journey where we need other people to, to help us see what we have no longer been able to see. And so that's really a difficult part of the journey because, like I said a minute ago, part of what's gotten distorted is our capacity to trust and our capacity Mm -hmm. to recognize who's trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons these counselors or pastors who take advantage of someone who's already had childhood abuse, you know, is so devastating because they should step in and help them see in a new way. And instead they smear more bug guts over the sensors and they say to them, don't ever go for help again. Mm -hmm. Terrible message. I do think that there's a way that we, even as children growing up, we learn to see the world the way it's reflected back to us by trusted caretakers. Mm-hmm. We learn to see ourselves as it's as we are mirrored back to us by trusted caretakers. And I think the early stages of trauma recovery, we almost need a few trusted caretakers. It's it's, it's a tough call, because you don't want to create dependence you don't want to foster the very thing that got them in that place in the first place where they someone else is telling them what they're responsible for but in those early stages of of trauma recovery part of our task as you guys all know is to give them some input and help them evaluate what they're seeing as opposed to just saying that's good that's not good Mm -hmm. that's trustworthy that's not present them the information and help them make an evaluation of their own so that their self-driving car is is being reprogrammed.
3: A counselor friend of mine calls it emotionally corrective experiences. It's this, you know, where it's so important to have that, you know, you're working on your healing journey, but there are some things that you can't do on your own without another person to reflect that
1: back. So, yeah. yeah. This this is so good. I love the car analogy, by the way. I can tell you're definitely a teacher because I'm like, I'm thinking <laughs> about bug <butt> guts now.
3: <laughs> bug guts
2: everywhere. <laughs>
1: I love it. I love it. But uh, there's so much I could add to. I, and I'm thinking about like the, the codependency and the responsibility aspect. And I think about some clients I work with and then I, I speak about spiritual abuse and cults. I'm a survivor of multiple cults myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand the responsibility aspect for a while. Finally got it. But I I find that a lot of survivors, particularly from, you know, religious trauma and abuse, they have a hard time with that responsibility aspect. They say, well, the leaders told me this and I'm supposed to follow. The Bible tells me this. And if I drive my car, whether it's a Tesla or not, if I take autonomy, then isn't that anti-God? Isn't that anti the will of God? And so they have a hard dynamic trying to find a a relationship with God and coming back home to self. Do you guys have any any insight on that?
2: Yeah, let let me, and and by the way, we've stumbled across something just in the last couple of months in, in our work that I think might also be helpful in this question. But let me first of all say, one of the ways that I talk to people about that very issue is At a core, one of our teachings is a simple, the individuation process of moving from dependence to independence is central to emotional, mental, spiritual maturity. Until you move from dependence to independence, you're still... The world is telling you, people are telling you, everything is telling you what's true, who you are. The world is managing you instead of you learning to manage yourself. So that move from dependence to independence is at the backdrop of all this. Think about even the misassignment of responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's still the failure to move from dependence. Both the abuser and the abuse victim remain dependent as long as they're mishandling the issue of responsibility. And so one of the things I tell people is that if a human father, by design, is to supposed to help their children move to independence. And by the way, most of us are not good at that. When we're young, young parents, and we're just getting started, and we just want the kid to not stick their hand in a in a socket. Yes, or they I'm want to keep
3: you alive. They I want got to this.
2: not drink the oil that's in the, in the little vat in the garage. We we just want them to not die. And so we end up telling them what to do all the time. And so a, a human father is supposed to be him, a mother. Are supposed to be moving their children towards autonomy so that they can be ultimately healthy in all the arenas of life when if a human parent is supposed to be that way how much more mm-hmm. i mean I, I sound like jesus like <laughs> if a father knows how to give good gifts you know, <laughs> if you ask your father for an egg he's not going to give you a scorpion mm-hmm. if you ask your father for independence he's not going to make you a slave mm-hmm. right and how much more then our father who's in heaven how much more is he wanting us to move towards independence tell people God's not looking for robots. He's looking for people who in his image know what it means to run the cosmos and can alongside him not below him, but alongside him. I mean, God doesn't look looking for a bunch of robots who are just going to do every single thing that comes out of his mouth. You know, he's looking for people who can learn to have his mind and operate with it without having to go back and check every single time. Because if a human father is a sign to give independence how much more our Heavenly Father. So let me just also take advantage of this to talk about the thing that we've stumbled across
3: Mm -hmm. and and then I want to say something about that real quick. Yeah,
2: Yeah. should you go before me?
3: Yeah, let me and one of our values is I think it's important, especially if you, you know, grew up in in the whole cult dynamic, and some of the all the religious dynamics, not all but Anyway, I'm not going to stumble. Is one of our core values is we create uh, disciples, not dependents. And and in that, you know, when you're navigating from a a victim place and and you've been abused, you've had you have trauma. You're navigating healing. If you align yourself with people who always need you to be dependent on them, then run like heck. Yep. I don't know if I can kiss on this or not. So I'm just gonna say hi. <laughs>
0: um, welcome, by the way. If okay, run like hell.
3: And then take,
0: uh, I take the heat from people who email me, it's fine. So, perfect. It's a- oh
3: great. Yeah, <laughs> they're fun to mess with, aren't they? So <laughs> so but it's so important to really understand that if somebody is like, you need me, right? And and I'm going to guide you and I'm going to direct you. And and when that happens, no matter how good their words seem and no matter how well they present themselves, whether it on stage or in a small group or whatever, when that dynamic is there, it is uh, dangerous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we say creating disciples, that is people who can independently step into who God has created them to be and and that thing that is in them that is uniquely theirs gets to go out and express it to the world and and we if we get to be a part of that celebrate that please right. go be the thing that you're created to be i do not we do not need you That's to okay. make us okay our mm-hmm. ego is not in this we and love I, that we get to do that
1: i think that is amazing that work that you do both you guys you know particularly because a lot, I find a lot of people sometimes, whether it's in the church, any type of religious community, there's so much inundation of the religion and the rules and the system that a lot of times people may not have been part of a cult, but they lose themselves in maintaining these rules and you know, within the system, and then the leader may not be abusive, the leader may not be cultic, but. You become what you're around instead of maintaining autonomy. I'll add this and then Bob, you can go for it because I'm (laughs) sparking. But that (laughs) that was part of the freedom for me after my last cult. And I said, okay, Nikki, you're a little common denominator in a lot of this. Let's sit with ourselves after all the brokenness. And that was one of the things I had to come and be honest with myself is I didn't want to take responsibility for my life. I came from a narcissistic background, so I was used to being told what to do. I was used to shoving down my intuition. I was used to finding someone that said, you need me. So I connected to those relationships. It was easy not to take responsibility. But once I realized that, I said, oh, wait a minute, this is a game changer here. I have beauty inside of me. There's a wisdom box inside of me. God gave it to me, and it's not something to be feared. It's something to embrace. And then, you know, it took the long journey of learning to, to come back home to self. But when a lot of people have not really heard that, it's like, well, if I do that, will I be going against God's will? If I do that, will I be, you know, out of alignment with the leadership? And that's a lot of work to unpack. I'm pretty sure you guys know. Well, there's
3: very much a reason why Jesus was
1: sent to earth.
2: Yeah, <laughs> we we tell people that freedom is not about the control of behavior, but about the unleashing of identity.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I like that. So, like it, that.
2: you know, not only is that beautiful thing inside of you to be embraced, but it's also to be unleashed. You know, given the the world needs that from you,
1: mm-hmm.
2: not just in a general sense from people, but the world needs what Nikki has inside, mm-hmm. and if you don't. Embrace that you can't unleash that. You said a super important thing that that takes me back to the other thing that I wanted to talk about a second ago, and that is, you lose yourself. That's what you said. Mm-hmm. You lose yourself. The thing that we've stumbled across recently is this simple but potent, but ridiculously potent idea that when when the abuse starts early and that misassignment of responsibility starts early. People actually give their will away. Yes. They don't know it because they're children. They're small, tiny children. They
3: they think,
2: and here's the, the, if you could put it in cognitive process, and I don't think children think this even, it's just the internal mechanism. What they think is I'm supposed to do what they want. So I don't even have a, what I want. Mm -hmm. So I grow up and I'm starting to think what I want is what everybody else expects of me. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm acting on my own free will, but what I'm really doing is I'm desiring what other people wanted me to desire. Right. And so what happens is they, they can spend a lifetime doing that or they can discover at some point and go shit. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Thanks Mm -hmm. for telling me to say that.
1: Yes. Freedom.
2: (laughs) And they say, you know, this isn't even what I wanted. And at some point you almost have to get mad and go, listen, if, if freedom's about the unleashing of identity, right now the only thing I'm living out is what the world has told me I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm. And even if that's a, a system of abusers that's told me I'm supposed to want these things, compliance, you know, control, you know, submission, all those kind of things, <laughs> you know, if that's what I've been told all this time, I think I want that stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Until one day I wake up and go. I don't right. want that stuff. And it's almost oh, like,
3: why do I hurt so bad?
2: Yeah. yeah. It's almost like adolescence, but in your forties, you
3: know, <laughs> Yeah.
2: know, adolescence, yes. you stand up and go, wait, you can't tell me what to do. But when your adolescence was spent taking responsibility for someone else's drives and choices and protection, you, you bypass the freedom of adolescence and you step, you live most of your adult life until at some point you step up and go, Like Polly said, why do I hurt so much? Because I thought I was living the life I wanted, but I'm living the life everybody else wanted. At some point, I've got to reach out, get my own will, pull it back in here. And and people can see that as rebellion, but I would see it as the first step towards real freedom. And that is, listen, if I'm going to unleash my identity with a number of people where the abuse started early, is they've literally given their will over to a person or a group of people.
1: And you see that a lot in the church where people say, I suspended my identity, my dreams, my wants to come up under someone else's vision Mm
3: -hmm. and their
1: work and what their agenda and what they felt God gave them. So I'll lose myself Mm -hmm. and come up under their vision. And then 10 years down the road, I'm resentful because it's like, you know, what happened to me? And it's so subtle. It's like being out by the beach and you're looking out and your feet's in the water. Next thing you know, you're like all the way halfway in and you don't even know what happened. But I mean, I, I, I had a bigger question, but Catherine, I don't know if we have time for that. You you decide on that one because I really want to hear. And
0: you ask the assassin, maybe they can answer it in three minutes.
1: <laughs> all right. Hold on to your seat. Here so we go. <laughs> this, <has> more- <laughs> this has more to do with narcissism. And I'm so glad you're talking about abuse a lot. Like my antennas are going up and I, I hope more people talk about abuse because it's everywhere. The systems, the enablers, and I've been thinking a lot about the enablers are just as bad as the abusers and it's getting worse and worse. When it comes to narcissism, there is, uh, and I don't know if you guys are aware of this, there is this new perspective, if you will, that's Around That is saying that people who say, hey, I've been narcissistically abused or call someone a narcissist or even say, hey, they have the NPD that that is considered being an ableist that is considered looking at the narcissist and you are being derogatory to them. You're using this language is very demonizing and. You should not do that. You should understand that they have a disability, they have a disorder, and it's basically a lot of groveling, in my opinion, to enable the narcissists and the abusers to thrive. And this is a big movement that, that's occurring right now. I don't know if you're aware, but any thoughts to abuse and the enabler in that context?
2: I've seen and heard a few things about it. I wasn't aware that it was a big movement, but here's, here's the dilemma that I think we face. And I think it's the dilemma of the world we live in right now. And that is that far too often the ability to call things what they are turn is, is accused of being some, a a negative, almost as if diagnosing cancer would be bad because we're calling cells disobedient, you know, almost as if diagnosing any kind of illness is a problem because you certainly don't want to call people sick. I'm going to step out there and take a little bit of a risk. And say you see the same thing when we see people talking about body image. And the inability to say that being overweight is actually physically unhealthy. There's a difference between body shaming and the declaration that there are conditions imposed on the human body. When your body fat and your body weight is at a point where it puts stress on your organs and your heart. And certainly somebody who would never body shame. We can't rob people of the ability to say, Hey, look, you're hurting your organs. And I I love you, care about you, but it's actually unloving to say to you that you're healthy when you're not. And so there is a kind of a, not just in the narcissism world, but in the world as a whole, there's a, there's almost a paralysis of the ability to diagnose something that's harmful regardless of what it is. Mm -hmm. And I think it just takes some courageous people to go Baloney. I know I, I know you told me I could cuss, but we won't it, go too far. <laughs> Couple of words,
0: you
3: know. <laughs> teaching, I have used teaching.
2: I had a few people like you said bullshit. So <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but I think it's a danger in all those areas. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure you're right that it's engineered by narcissists, protecting narcissists. But at some point you can say, okay, listen, we're gonna we're gonna talk about your disorder, but your disorder hurts people, and we're not gonna stop talking about that. Right. Your disorder may lead to behaviors. But the other thing about that is, you know, I don't know if you've heard the saying before, but they say narcissism is the only disorder where everybody's treated except the person that has it.
1: Amen. So true.
2: At some point we have to go, okay, if you're going to claim your disability, then go get help with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Ooh, yep, that's it.
2: If yeah. you're going to cause everybody else to go to counseling, then you don't have any right to defend your disability. But if you're going to claim you've got a disability, then go to the doc.
3: Mm-hmm. Own it and don't make people responsible for coddling you. That's right.
1: You know, and just giving the the survivors a voice because they already have enough to deal with thinking, am I the narcissist, you know, what happened to me? And so I just, this societal gaslighting with this, you know, particular thing is kind of like, it's going to
0: get worse. It's going to get worse. This is yeah, what we were talking yeah. about a little earlier. <clears throat> As we're educating, abusers are going to come back and they're And their flying monkeys are going to come back and they're going to, they're going to counteract it in some way.
2: Yeah. Imagine that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So all of, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. So this is fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Do you have any parting words before we wrap up?
2: I'm going to say the thing that I, that I sort of said a couple minutes ago, and I just think this is so crucial. Survivors are some of the most powerful, beautiful, kind, generous, thoughtful, patient people I've ever met in my life. And I've often talked about how, when we kind of open our eyes and recognize that we too have been through an abuse situation, we, we actually join an amazing community of people. Mm-hmm. And rather than think about ourselves as somebody who, who's been done wrong, I think it's kind of unveiled the powerful people in the world.
3: Yes. Yeah. Love it. And that, as a survivor, I'm speaking to two survivors and being one myself, just don't give up. And when we talk about being a voice for the world, you don't have to do it. The world means just one person. The world is you standing up for yourself and and being kind to yourself in the process. And then your kindness may touch somebody that you will never know. And, and that is you being a voice. And so just, just don't give up continue and there are good counselors out there that will love you well if you've experienced horrible ones yeah. and and trust your instincts. Thank you. Thank
0: you so much. Thank you. all too
2: so <laughs> thank you guys.
3: Thanks thank for you. Nice on. meeting
0: y'all. Good to meet you guys. Bye <laughs> bye. Too. Too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review. And don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Catherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.